Good evening, this is a special two-hour edition of Laura Coates Live. Abby has the night off. I want to begin tonight not, not with words, but with the images and the sounds of the moment that hostages finally came face to face with their loved ones. Seven whole weeks after being ripped away by Hamas. Watch. גגתם אליי? כן? חשבתם על אבא? חביבי, חשבת על אבא? כן? חשבת עליי דברים טובים? כן? מה אמא אמרה עליי? חלמת שהלכתם הביתה? You know, when you watch that, what really strikes me, how little words are actually exchanged between those who are holding each other, the faces, what it's like for a parent to see their child, the children to see their parents. It's, un, it's overwhelming and unbelievable to think about what this was like. And tonight, a whirlwind return out of captivity for 11 more Israelis, nine of whom are children. Doctors, nurses in Tel Aviv met hostages, ferried by a helicopter and a hospital. And inside, teddy bears, flowers, toys, they were on standby, ready to receive three-year-old twins released into Israeli custody. The truce between Israel and Hamas seems fragile, and at best, we're being quite generous with that. And for now, the intention is to make it last two more days and to make sure that two more exchanges of hostages and Palestinian prisoners takes place. 
Israel's government says it's received and now reviewing the latest list of those abducted that Hamas promises to return. It raises hopes, if only an inch, that the stop in the fighting gives way to maybe a ceasefire and eventually peace talks. Also tonight, new details give clarity to a harrowing question. What exactly was life like for these hostages? Many of those answers are coming directly from family members of those who were taken. They ate a lot of uh, rice. Uh, sometimes they, they didn't have rice, so they ate only bread. It wasn't that they were eating, you know, fruit and vegetables and vitamins and whatever uh, things that you need. 50 days on food that you would give to a bird. Families have told CNN and others over and over that their relatives lost abnormal amounts of weight over the past seven weeks. And that, for now, they can't even eat or drink normally. Every word confirming that the hostages were treated like prisoners in solitary confinement. Many people, and they got light only for two hours a day. You know, they, they not mentioned they didn't have any uh, decent facilities like shower. They didn't shower for seven weeks. So it's horrible condition. Another recurring theme, sleep. It was hard to come by. And when it did happen, it was on improvised beds, chairs that were pushed together or maybe tables, something you and I don't think about. Going to the bathroom was another arduous labor. She told me that if you want to go to the toilet, you have to knock on the door, and only after one and a half hour, two hours, they open the door and you can go to the bathroom. Imagine there were children there as well. And the physical toll, I mean, it's unmistakable. The mental anguish, unfathomable. Listen to this man describe his first interaction with his niece. She can smile, uh, she talks to me, she hugs me. So I feel it's the same kid. She's a little bit uh, distant now, she's a little bit cold. Uh, she talks about things that happen like it's in third person, like it happened to someone else. Uh, she says she saw horrible things, but she says it with a straight face. Um, it's like she's describing a scene from a movie that she's, she watched somewhere. I mean, think about that disassociation, right? The stories emerging each and every hour, for, and they are powerful. Let's take a step back, though, and look at the entire picture about what we've watched happen over the past several days and hopefully what to expect looking forward. Joining me now is Alex Marquardt, CNN's chief national security correspondent. Alex, when you hear these stories, they are unbelievable to think about. I want to talk about the numbers, though, for a lot of people who haven't been knowing about this. Set the stage for us in terms of the number of people who have returned home already. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of numbers, and they're all very important because they each tell a story, right? Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, when this deal started four days ago, there were still just shy of 240 hostages altogether. In the past four days, 69 have been released uh, by Hamas. Now, the deal said over four days, 50 Israeli women and children were to be released. Some of them are dual nationals, like that young girl, Abigail Edan. She's an American citizen as well. So that did happen. The 50 came out over the past four days. There were a couple surprises that we weren't anticipating. There were 19 others who came out at the same time over the course of those four days. 
There was a Russian-Israeli man who was released yesterday. He's the only Israeli man who has been released so far, and he was actually released under a side deal that was done directly between the Russians and Hamas. And that speaks to that growing relationship between those two parties, which is very interesting. And then you have 18 other foreign nationals uh, they are not Israeli. Uh, there are a lot of Thai nationals, for example, who work as laborers in Israel. And so on the saw, kibbutz. Uh, on various mm-hmm. kibbutzes uh, in, in the agricultural agricultural sector, generally speaking, in Israel. And so we have 17 Thai nationals and one Filipino national uh, who were released as well. So great news, obviously, 69, but that's only about 30% of the original number. So you still have the vast majority who are still being held by Hamas and other groups in Gaza. And but a fraction of those who were killed on October 7th as well. But there was an exchange. It wasn't just the release. It was also Palestinian prisoners. What do we know generally about those who were released? So the agreement when it broke was that for every hostage who was released, 150 Palestinians would be released from Israeli prisons. So you have 50 who were released. So 150 Palestinians have been released over the past four days. We've seen these uh, scenes of celebration in the West Bank as these Palestinians have come home. Um, These are also just women and children. The vast majority who are eligible to be released among the Palestinians are male teenagers between 16 and 18 years old. Some are as young as 14 years Mm. old. The range of charges uh, is quite broad. There are some who are accused of being uh, allied or taking part in illegal terrorist organizations, uh, for having illegal weapons. Uh, But the majority, we're told, are charged with things like throwing stones and endangering regional security. And then there's something that's very uh, important and and, and worth noting. The fact that there are dozens among these 150 who are held under what's called administrative detention, which is this highly criticized part of the Israeli judicial system in which Palestinians can be held without charge. They can be held without trial for months or for years. They can be held essentially indefinitely. I mean, a comparison here, that's the absence of due process in the United States. It's been criticized internationally as well. A lot ahead. Thank you, Alex, for the numbers. So important. Thank you. I want to bring in Ahal Besorai. He was born and raised on the kibbutz Be'ari. His niece and nephew survived Hamas captivity. Ahal, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, just thinking about what this must be like for you and your family to know that they have returned after seven weeks of just trying to get some answers. What is tonight like for you? I think there is a definite sense of relief uh, that they are back and uh, sort of uh, uh, okay. Uh, but it's mixed with uh, some sad news. Uh, my sister, the mom, uh, was murdered on uh, October 7. Uh, the children didn't know that. Um, we thought they were together when they were kidnapped, but they were separated from the outset. And when they first crossed the border and united with their grandmother uh, and, all this, and all their brother, the first news that they had to confront with was the fact that the mom uh, is no longer alive. Uh, And that was a terribly emotional and traumatic moment for them. Uh, I believe when they were captive for 50 days, one of the thoughts that kept them going was, 
a cuddle from the mom at the end of it. And this dream had been shattered by the fact that she was murdered. The fact that they did not know that their mother had been killed. I can't even imagine what those moments would have been like for your niece and nephew. How are they doing emotionally? I know there's the physical, but just thinking about emotionally, what that is like for them, can you even describe what they're saying to you? Um, I think they are very slim, you know, so they lost a lot of weight. I think some other uh, interviewees uh, mentioned that. And for me, I don't think uh, the terrorists use this as a, uh, some sort of a torture methodology. Probably there is a scarcity of food in Gaza, and uh, they also suffered from that. Um, when I spoke to them, the first uh, time I spoke to Alma, the 13-year-old uh, niece, she had this enormously big smile and glittering eyes when she came to the, to the Zoom call. Uh, and this is what stuck in my head. What is behind these glittering eyes and what is deep inside her uh, following this horrible ordeal? Uh, it's, it's just very difficult for me to assess. Uh, when they talk, they come across as normal children. Uh, they recounted some of the experience that they had in captivity. Some of them are very unpleasant. Uh, Can you describe some of those to us now, what they were going through? I would rather not, because uh, there are other parents who have children in captivity, and there is no need to make them uh, worry more. But Mm -hmm. I can just say that it wasn't uh, pleasant, to say the least. It was horrible. they were held in a, in a house, in a room, with another lady, uh, also from the kibbutz. Uh, and uh, when they decided to release them, they didn't actually tell the other lady that they are going to, to release them. So they just took them out on a ploy that they are going to the toilets, and then handcuffed them, blindfolded them, took them to the car, that then took them to the place where, the, where they are being handed over to the uh, Red Cross. Uh, so they uh, had no meetings. idea that they were even so being really released alone. at the time? Yeah. They had no idea until they were in the hands of the Red Cross that they were going to be freed? No, but they were, they tried to hide it from the lady who stayed behind all, all, all on their own. Uh, so maybe put some psychological pressure on her. It's really buggers' belief of why would you behave or do things to that extent. Uh, uh, I know also that they were uh, having a diary, the three of them together, uh, and the terrorists did not allow them to take it with. Uh, and another, I think, very telling anecdote. So when they were walking, uh, this is the grandfather told me that, uh, uh, when they were walking to from the vehicle of the terrorists to the Red Cross, and they were holding hands, uh, Noam told his sister Alma that he just felt very sorry because they were 
surrounded by Gazans, by civilians. He said, I feel so sorry for them because they are staying here and we are going home. Wow. And it just shows you, you know, how uh, beautiful a, a person at this probably lowest point in his life, emotionally, physically, that he can still think about others. I mean, it's truly beautiful to think about and just the idea of keeping that diary to still look around in one's own plight and appreciate the goodness and what was happening. The sensitivity, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm so, I'm, I'm happy that they have been released and I'm sorry for what they've had to endure. And for you personally, this was your sister. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you. Up next... After his anti-Semitic post, Elon Musk shows up in Israel. Kara Swisher joins me live. Plus, new details tonight on the shooting of three Palestinian college students in Vermont, what the suspect told police. And Derek Chauvin, remember him, the former officer convicted in George Floyd's killing, is stabbed inside a prison. His attorney will join me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Elon Musk getting a, well, a warm welcome today and a visit to Israel, which may surprise you if you recall that just recently he raised more than a few eyebrows promoting an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on X. But that did not seem to stop Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, from rolling out a kind of welcome mat. Joining me now to discuss CNN contributor Kara Swisher, host of the podcasts On and Pivot. Kara, I mean, first of all, what was he doing in Israel today? Well, he has a private plane. He can go anywhere he wants. You know, I think he was trying to do some uh, fixing of the problems he's been having for the last couple of weeks over those prom- the promotion of those anti-Semitic uh, tweets. Um, I think it caused a lot more consternation among advertisers than he thought. So he was trying to sort of do a bit of cleanup, would be my guess. Did he clean it up? He didn't apologize, we understand, right? Did he attempt to? Yeah. I don't know. He went and had some observations. I'm not sure why we're focused on him and not the hostages. He usually flies in and does this. Um, You know, he can try as much as he wants. You know, look, he, he, he made a mistake. And a very bad one. And everyone knows, as you know, the, the mayor of Paris today was calling uh, uh, the, the, the platform a toxic waste dump, essentially. And so he's trying to make it seem for advertisers that it's not as bad and he has empathy. And, you know, it's, it's not unlike a political person going in and doing that. I, I just don't know why we're focusing on him and not the hostages. Like you just have well, these 
you know, terrible experiences. Not us, not you in particular, but why he's there. I don't know why Netanyahu had him there. Um, it sucks up media attention. Uh, you know, it looks like he was sort of learning on on the ground. Oh, look, it's Hamas is terrible. Oh, we should be careful about, you know, we should help Gaza. This is, I don't know why we need to be doing this at this moment in time, but now, sure. You were exactly where I was thinking, because the reason I am concerned about Elon Musk being there is because Netanyahu and the president, in the midst of the hostages being released, in the midst of negotiations, took the time out to shepherd him around, it seems. So it tells you about their yeah. priorities. And also the platform itself, um, whether it's the toxic waste dump that you allude to from the French president or otherwise, there is a lot of statements, a lot of conversations happening on it that can add to and contribute mm -hmm. to what the rise of anti-Semitism. Sure so I'm wondering, can his presence being there, besides the advertisers, can his presence being there, Kara, can it course correct some of what we're seeing? I don't know. I think advertisers are on to this kind of thing. You know, when a politician does it, there is, he's a politician of a different sort, of a tech politician, I guess. Um, it's fine. I, you know, Netanyahu has has let him helped him out of a jam when he was attacking ADL a while ago. He visited him. Um, Netanyahu's in a jam of his own. So, you know, he's trying. They're both trying to sort of use the reflected fame to create some good thing. And I'm glad he learned about the problems there. I'm glad he went there. But, you know, I, I'm not sure why why it's happening, I would, except to clean up uh, his mess. And it's his own mess, and he should apologize. Um, he's not going to. Um, he's not going to. So, You know what occurs to me when people have, and maybe I'm being too cynical here and judgmental, I mean, imagine that. But, Kara, <laughs> epiphanies like this, when someone visits a place yeah. like Gaza or other areas, and you say to yourself, "Sure, you mean you had no clue that this was happening or that there was, I mean, all the coverage, even in the last seven weeks, that an epiphany can still occur to that degree that he speaks about, I find surprising. But he has a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing from our Department of yes. Homeland Security and beyond we know there is a rise in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. We know that a lot of the conversations happen behind that cloak of anonymity on social media. What could be done for him to be more transparent about how this is happening on his platform? I think, you know, he's hiding behind the fig leaf of free speech. That's his that's his go to thing. Um, in this case, you know, look, we it's clear he promoted anti-Semitic content at the very least. Uh, I don't know what's in his heart. Uh, I don't know what he's thinking in doing this. I know it's having repercussions with advertisers and that's what counts to him right now. And so he's trying to, you know, save, save his skin and he, okay. Again, I don't, I don't know that we need to be, this is not a new thing for Silicon Valley people to have epiphanies. I had an argument with Mark Zuckerberg about Holocaust deniers. It took him two years to remove them from the platform um, because he had, you know, he had to learn about it. And so I don't think we should be learning, helping billionaires learn necessarily. <laughs> I don't know if that's the <laughs> great goal of, of the world. Um, I'm glad he saw these things. Uh, he's very lucky that he could do that, that he could fly there and meet with the head of the country. Uh, I think the focus should be on the hostages and not Elon Musk. That is really pretty much my take. And he inserts himself quite a lot, uh, in a lot of stuff that he has no business inserting himself in. I wish he would just you know, fix the service and keep quiet a little bit more. But he doesn't like to do. He went down to Texas, he, whatever. OK, I don't know where he's going to pop up next. Maybe in the Newsom uh, DeSantis debate, maybe he'll be sitting in the front row commenting. I don't know. I don't care at this point, honestly. <laughs>
Well, really quick, Kara, on this I'm point, because if, if his, sure. no, I, you have to apologize. I mean, the idea of thinking about the focus rightly being on the hostage and beyond, and yet mm -hmm. money makes the world go round. And if his focus is on the sure advertisers does. and that's what's going on, then maybe is the private mm -hmm. sector the most powerful influencer in trying to resolve what's going on? Is that where the focus ought to be in trying to lean appropriately? I think in Israel, the focus should be on the hostages. With Elon Musk, he should be talking to his advertisers. Maybe he should have visited them and listened them and, and, and spoke his mind and what he actually meant to say. Or, you know, but this happens over and over again, whether it's on trans issues or gay issues or he does it all the time. And then, you know, what was really kind of sad was on Twitter, on X, um, people were saying, you see, he's not an anti-Semite. He went to Israel. And I was like, Okay, that's why are we talking about this? Like, why is this the topic? That doesn't prove anything. I don't know what's in this man's heart. I honestly don't, and none of us do. I do know what he promotes, and he should be. He should stop doing that. He'll do it again, though. He does it. He's done it before. He called George Soros names. He, you know, he attacked the ADL. You know, he just can't help himself. I, I don't. I don't know what's going on in his heart, though. Well, Kara Swisher, we know what happened on the ground today in his visits. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Nice to see you as always. Thank you. Good to see you, Laura. Well, a suspect arrested in the shooting of three Palestinian college students in Vermont. Officials are investigating whether it was, in fact, a hate crime. More on the new details next. Tonight, we've got new details about the shooting of three Palestinian college students in Burlington, Vermont, as well as the question, why did it happen? The suspect, Jason Eaton, entered a not guilty plea today to three charges of attempted murder in the second degree, and he's being held without bail. The court docs describe a shooting that seemingly came out of nowhere. Hisham Awatani, Keenan Abed Alamid and Tassin Ali Ahmad say they were just walking outside Saturday evening, speaking in a mix of Arabic and English. Two were wearing Palestinians' kafiyas. They told police that the suspect stepped off a porch and started shooting without saying a single word. Now, they don't have evidence yet to call it a hate crime under the law enforcement officials, and they're trying to determine what his motive really was. But the family members, they say they know exactly why it happened. That these boys were, these young men were targeted because the, uh, they were Arabs, uh, that they were wearing kafiyas. Um, I think that is our fear. We'll support the authorities as they go through their investigation, but it certainly seems um, like that's our fear. I want to bring in Democratic Congresswoman Becca Ballant of Vermont. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I mean, this story is unbelievable. What is your reaction to what we've learned about the shooter and how this happened? Yeah, it, this has been a devastating, uh, violent attack on these young men. And I know I speak for Vermonters across the state that we are just absolutely heartbroken by what has happened to these young men and what their families are going through right now. And it is clear that, uh, as as you were, were just saying in the intro, we, we don't know yet about a motive. We don't know yet about the circumstances leading up to this incredibly violent attack, seemingly completely unprovoked. Um, and 
you know, we're we're waiting for the official word from both our, our local and, and federal partners on more of the details. But what we know as Vermonters is we want to stand um, absolutely unequivocally with these families, with these Palestinian Americans and say, we do not uh, condone hate in this in this state that we have to stand with our Muslim brothers and sisters here in Vermont and across the nation. And we must absolutely reject the Islamophobia and, and fear of Arabs that is that is on the rise right now in this country. But, you know, the most important thing in talking with some of the family members today that they wanted me to convey to Americans is that we must continue to see them as humans and not this, not just as a story that we're all talking about, that they were young men, you know, just walking together, friends from, uh, you know, long ago, they've, they've been friends their whole lives and just walking down a street in, in Burlington and being attacked. And they don't want us to lose the humanity of these individuals. I'm so glad you said that because oftentimes we can talk about a story as opposed to what exactly is happening. And these are three college students walking on a Saturday night Thanksgiving weekend to be gunned down in this manner. Anywhere in America, anywhere in the world, this should be an unbelievable story to people. And yet, it's increasingly familiar for what we are seeing. Now, separately, Congresswoman, in the war, the Washington Post is reporting that President Biden apologized to some prominent Muslim American leaders after he publicly questioned the Palestinian death toll that's been reported by the Hamas-controlled Gaza Ministry of Health. What do you make of that apology? Well, I think the president, um, like so many Americans, wants to be able to convey clearly uh, that he stands with uh, innocent Palestinian civilians and, and Israelis. And it is so clear to me that this is a man who can admit when he hasn't quite hit the mark. And so I applaud that he is always trying to be better and to be really clear with Muslim Americans across the country and most particularly Palestinian Americans that the, the, the death toll in Gaza is absolutely devastating, that the suffering cannot continue. And so I, am, I'm, I welcome his apology and his commitment to doing better. And I think that's something that we as Americans all need to do is to hold this complexity and to be able to say this suffering cannot continue. Congresswoman Becca Ballant, thank you so much for your words tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Tonight, a new development on a story that CNN has been following very closely. A man who has served over a decade in prison for a crime that experts say he could not have committed, well, he might soon be freed. Hear why when Jake Tapper joins me live. Tonight, the clock is ticking. The Philadelphia District Attorney now has 180 days to decide whether C.J. Rice gets to breathe fresh air and free air once again. Rice is in year 12 of a 30 to 60 year prison sentence for a 2011 shooting that injured four people. It's a case that CNN has followed very closely. Now, because of groundbreaking reporting by Jake Tapper, no less, his reporting asked a simple question at the heart of Mr. Rice's conviction. Was he even capable 
of committing this crime. Joining me now is CNN anchor Jake Tapper, who wrote about T.J. Rice's conviction for The Atlantic last year. You remember, may remember this. Jake, this is a, apparently a, be- a very big development tonight. What happened? Well, um, a judge overturned his conviction. Uh, we argued in that Atlantic cover story uh, last October 2022 uh, that C.J. Rice did not get adequate counsel, that his attorney, uh, Sanjay Weaver, who has since uh, passed away, uh, was incompetent and did not represent him adequately. Uh, in September, the district attorney's office um, granted uh, attorney Carl Schwartz's uh, habeas petition um, uh, he's an attorney that I believe my father hired, although my dad will not admit to it. Um, and then uh, a, a judge in October agreed and ordered the habeas uh, petition be granted. And then today, a second and final judge ordered that the habeas petition be granted, overturning the conviction. So now, as you noted, it goes back to uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, represented by the district attorney of Philadelphia, to decide whether to retry the case or to free CJ. And I am confident that the district attorney of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, will ultimately decide to free C.J. Rice. You know, you mentioned your father. and It's an important reason you did so, because your father was actually C.J. Rice's pediatrician and brought this case actually to your attention. He didn't think it was even he was capable of committing this crime. So, I mean, what do you make of this happening so many years after his conviction? Twelve years. So my dad was his attorney. Yeah. So my dad was his um, his pediatrician, as you noted, and was convinced that CJ could not have committed the crime because CJ had been shot a few weeks before this shooting and said that CJ was in no position to 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 even walk briskly, much less uh, run after this crime. Uh, And it was two black males shooting this family. Um, But there was a questionable photo lineup and and this family picked out, this one woman picked out C.J. and said he did it. And you know how the justice system, and I put justice in quotes, works. And uh, with incompetent counsel and this one eyewitness ID, and we all know how, how undependable witness, how unreliable witness ID can be, uh, C.J. was sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison. Um, and and uh, after a few years of my dad complaining about this to me and how unfair it was, and him trying to do it on his own, uh, I said, Dad, I'm a journalist. Let me, let me see if I can do something about this. And <clears throat> I pitched uh, the story a few places. And ultimately, Jeff Goldberg, my friend, who is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, uh, said, well, why don't you write it for us? And it turned into a cover story. Um, and I, I'd like to think that that helped uh, with Carl Schwartz uh, as, and his habeas petition, helped get it some attention. And now, finally, the the conviction's been overturned. And like I said, it's now in the hands of the district attorney's office. But I hope that they will come to the realization that a division in their office has already agreed upon that CJ did not get adequate representation. Nobody in the shooting he was convicted on was even seriously injured, much less killed. The guy has done 12 years in prison for a crime I do not think he committed. My father, who was his pediatrician at the time, did not think he was even physically capable of committed. It is time for the wheels of justice, which have spun very slowly, to come to their conclusion and let him go. It's unbelievable to think about this. I mean, just all the different steps, all of the different moments 
where he could have not been incarcerated. And I was wondering, Jake, as you well know, I'm sure you're thinking about it all the time, how many other people are in prison right now whose fathers did not have an, a persistent and completely devoted attention to a case like this to be able to hand it off to somebody like yourself and all those that are right now in the legal system trying to make it a just one. Jake, thank you for that story, and I, I cannot wait to see what happens next with CJ. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. And I, I, the, the, the article in The Atlantic makes it very clear. What is, you, what is amazing about this story is how common, how common mm-hmm. it is. Uh, we have a, a, a legal system in this country, my dad always says, we do not have a justice system. We have a legal system. Well, I have been a federal prosecutor. I second that emotion, Mr. Tapper. Check out Jake Tapper's show on The Lead tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us. Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer convicted in the killing of George Floyd. He has now been stabbed in prison. We'll talk to his attorney next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The former Minneapolis police officer convicted in the killing of George Floyd has been stabbed inside of a federal prison just recently. We're told Derek Chauvin is in stable condition, but the circumstances are still a mystery. I'm joined now by Derek Chauvin's attorney, Gregory Erickson. Gregory, thank you for joining us tonight. What are you learning about the condition of Derek Chauvin, your client, tonight? Well, uh, I did as uh, a matter of fact, finally get contacted by the federal prison system tonight. And I spoke with them for about 10 minutes and I learned about as much uh, uh, from them as I I would have learned from you. Uh, And that's meaning that she told me basically nothing. Uh, She said that the matter was under active investigation and they weren't going to give out any details. And then with respect to Derek's health and and medical condition, she could not provide me any information unless and until Mr. Chauvin filled out some sort of report. And then I, of course, asked her that, uh, well, did you ask Mr. Chauvin to fill out this report so that his attorneys and family members could find out about his medical condition? And of course she said no. So do you don't know who stabbed him or whether he is in stable condition, whether he has had surgery, where he was stabbed, what part of his body, how many times? None of that is known to you. Uh, None of it is known to us. It's been over 72 hours since it's happened. But what happens next? Will he be moved to a higher or maybe even a maximum security facility in light of what's happened to him? Well, I think think it's fair to say that, that we... We're, uh, his team uh, at my firm are, are going to need to be provided some sort of 
and his family, obviously, are going to be needed to provide some sort of assurances that what happened can't happen again, meaning there's going to be some sort of extra protection or, or, or enhanced protocols or something like that. Uh, we certainly can't let it go back to the status quo because obviously the status quo is, is unacceptable. I, <clears throat> well, but I one, one, one question for you, Gregory. I don't want to um, cut you off, excuse me, but was he in fear for his safety before this event happened? Well, I think it's fair to say that the second that he went into the prison system because of the nature of uh, his trial being the most publicized trial of the last 25 years, he definitely had concerns for his safety and all of you know his attorneys, his family, Everyone had concerns for his safety throughout this ordeal. And I Has would he say, been in solitary? Uh, I, uh, I, I know that he was in solitary initially, uh, but obviously he certainly wasn't in solitary when this happened, because if he was, I doubt that it could happen or it'd have to be really coordinated in order for it to happen. Is the reason and the nature of this form, is it about medical privacy? Is that the nature of why the Bureau of Prisons is telling you that he has to fill out a form? Do you that's, have any idea of why? That's, that's the alleged reason, okay? I mean, the reality is this. If somebody from the Bureau of Prisons wanted to, to present that form to Mr. Chauvin, if he was able to sign it, I'm very confident that this thing would have been signed already. It's been 72 hours. I think this is part of part of an attempt to keep what's happened to him out of the general, uh, <clears throat> out from the media and from general knowledge until they've found out a way to, how to deal with this uh, public relations disaster. Have you had communication with him up until now? No, of, of course not. I mean, we, we, we don't know where he is. We don't know how to contact him. And we've both, and, and, I mean, I get it that it's important that you're able to speak with your attorney, and that's obviously a right of every criminal defendant. But the reality is the, the more egregious part about this is that his family members had to find out that he had been stabbed by communications by the attorney general of this state, who has no jurisdiction over Mr. Chauvin at this point, and there's absolutely no reason he should have been provided any information about Mr. Chauvin's condition at all. Um, Do you know why uh, he was? I, mean, and I don't know. And apparently, uh, according to what I'm hearing, there's some some uh, discussions uh, related to why that information was leaked um, to the attorney general. But I, I can't I can't speculate more than what I've said. I mean, because I just I just don't know how he managed to get that information before everybody else did. There's certainly a lot more to this story. Gregory Erickson, keep us posted. Thank you so much. Thank you. Eleven more children and women released today, but the numbers, they don't begin to tell the story. Tonight in the second hour of Laura Coates Live. Now for every one of the 11 women and children released today, 
There are loved ones who've been suffering along with them, who didn't know whether they'd ever see their family members again. For every one of those 11 people who are experiencing their first day of freedom since October 7th, there are others who are still being held hostage. I mean, just, just think of it. All the kids released today by Hamas still have fathers in captivity. And for seven weeks, we've all been waiting. We've talked to mothers, we've talked to fathers, sisters, brothers. While so many of their loved ones are still unaccounted for, there are others whose tonight their prayers have been answered. Remember Erez Calderon, who turned 12 in captivity along with his 16-year-old sister, Sahar? I talked to their mother, Hadash, just three weeks after they were taken. You can imagine, you know, Erez, he was just celebrating his birthday, 12 years old birthday, in the captivity in Gaza. We celebrate without him a surrealistic birthday. Well, now, Erez and his sister, Sahar, are free. But their father is believed to still be in Gaza and still being held hostage. And there are so many others. Just a moment, I'll talk to the mother of Elan Oel. He was abducted from a bomb shelter at the rave where hundreds of people were killed. He is a 22-year-old pianist who loves music. This is Elan playing a piece called Dimension, composed by Sawash. Learning more tonight about the conditions the hostages endured while they were held captive by Hamas. Some fed nothing but rice and beans, which they tried to avoid even eating so they would not get sick. I mean, can you imagine being so hungry but still afraid to eat anything, living in darkness and knowing nothing about what was going on above ground? But with the truce continuing for now two more days, there will be some 20 more reunions, hopefully. Like nine-year-old Emily Hand. You see her, who was initially believed to be killed by Hamas militants, reuniting with her father in his arms. While 13-year-old Hila Rotem reunited with her uncle after both were released by Hamas. Like Mayan Zine, reuniting with her daughters, Daphna and Ila, following their release. And the only American hostage released so far, Abigail Eden, the four-year-old American dual citizen abducted by Hamas on October 7th. I mean, look at her smile. This beautiful little girl is only four, turned four in captivity. And she can't really know yet what's happened to her family. Her mother and her father both killed. Her father was killed while he was holding her. Now imagine what she's thinking. A four-year-old held captive for seven weeks. And now she's free. But will she ever feel safe again? And what about the others? What does the road ahead look like for them? Joining me now, Edith Oel, her 22-year-old son, Elon, was abducted by Hamas, and she has not heard from him since October 7th. 
Adid, thank you so much for being with us. I, I cannot imagine what you are going through and what these weeks have been like for you and your heart. But I do want to play this video of your son being taken by Hamas. This is the last time that you even saw a video confirming that he was all right. And I have to warn everyone, it's extremely graphic to watch, to see. I can only imagine what it's like as a mother to view it. Do you know, sitting here tonight, Adit, anything else about his condition? No, I, I don't know anything about him. Uh, the last time I've, I heard from him was at 8 o'clock on the 7th of October, uh, 8 o'clock in the morning um, when he was uh, taken. I have, I have no idea. I haven't heard from him since. I don't know how he is, where he is. I'm still waiting, you know, to to be back with him and in his home and with me and his family. But uh, we have no, we have nothing. Um, and we obviously we're worried. Um, his sister and his brother also um, feeling, you know, that they are hopeless and finding him and knowing where he is right now. So, I mean, he's 22 years old, but he certainly is your baby. I know how I think about even my 11-year-old. It's still a baby yes. to me. And, and in your baby, he was hiding in a bomb shelter before being abducted. He was with yes. three friends. Can you tell us what happened that day? What do you know about what sure. happened that day? Yeah. Uh, I know a lot what happened that day because of his great friend uh, who was with him and survived this. So he got to this bomb shelter because um, he actually got to the party, to the Nova party at 5.30 in the morning. And by 6, they started to hear uh, rockets falling down. So they had to find uh, a bomb shelter to get cover. Uh, they drove and the they found the nearest bomb shelter in Reim place in Israel, and they went and got inside. He was there with um, four of his other friends, and in this bomb shelter, there were also there were thirty some people in that bomb shelter. You, under, you have to understand that this bomb shelter is only capable to to have like ten people, okay? But there were more than thirty. So I think like about like 20 minutes after they got there, um, thinking that everything is okay. We have like a, they were talking to each other and everything was fine. And then they, they started hearing things, uh, Arabic and, um, and then suddenly uh, the Hamas came in and started to throw 12 grenades into the bomb shelter. So they were throwing grenades into the bomb shelter and this beautiful man uh, who tried to save everybody, his name was Aner, I say was because he was murdered, uh, trying to fight, to throw grenades outside. So he was taking these grenades in his hands, throwing them outside. What I heard was that my son took one or two and did the same because he was, by, was near Aner at this time. So he was trying to help him. Uh, one grenade exploded inside the bomb shelter and injuring many, and Anero died uh, instantly that because he was holding, he probably was the ones who were holding the grenade, we don't know, but he was, he died. Uh, 
was killed that day. Um, and then they, the Hamas went inside and took my son. Okay, that's what you're saying. He took my son and he took two others. He took uh, Hirsch uh, Goldenberg, which he which he had. He's an American citizen. He's got yeah. his hand amputated. So oh. uh, and on that trip. Okay, so uh, Hirsch, and he's not my, my son's friend, but I know him because of this. So he's he also was taken with my son. And uh, that was the t- last time I heard from him. His, his friend, uh, uh, two of his friends uh, were killed that day because oh, what indeed. happened was that after, after Hamas took um, my son and these two others, uh, they went inside and started to kill everyone. So only seven survived. The Hamas didn't know seven survived because there were so many people kill, be, killed they started to go and um, on top of each other, each one was killed. And the people that were in, in the, underneath that survived, uh, somehow they, were, uh, they played dead. Okay, so one of them was my son's friend who played dead and waited six hours uh, with others, hoping that uh, somebody will come and take them, uh, hoping that something Indeed. will happen. I mean, yeah. he waited six hours, and here you are waiting seven weeks now um, to hear yeah. some word yeah. about yeah. your son, yeah. um, and and Definitely. you haven't heard anything yet, and yet we're waiting. We're waiting for the list to come out day in and day out. We're waiting here, you know, in the safety of a studio and in the United States of America, and think that you're waiting as a mother trying to figure out where your son is, and I desperately hope that you get that word, Adit. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and sharing about the bravery and the heroism and also about the reality of what you and so many others are facing tonight. Thank you. Yeah, it's very, it's very, thank you. Thank you. It's very important to say this and I hope that, um, that we'll get help and somebody will come and tell us that he's alive and, and will come back to us. Mm. It's very important for us. And uh, thank you for you, Laura, for doing this and understanding what we're going through in Israel and uh, what all our, you know, the, the kidnapped family are going through. It's very important because this is real. This is yes. not fake news. We need you for this. Thank you. Thank well, you. Thank you. So and we, we, thank you. We hope to hear him play beautiful music once again. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to bring in now Ofrit Shapira Berman, a psychoanalyst and expert in treating trauma, who's also a professor at Hebrew University. Ofrit, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, it's so hard for so many people to wrap their minds around even the, the stories that are coming out of what so many people endured. And we are yet to scratch the surface, as you can imagine, of what else has taken place. We've been watching these videos, Afrit, of, of helicopters, of vans bringing hostages to hospitals. How are doctors getting ready to receive these hostages? And of course, you've got the physical, you've got the mental that's going to come along with it. Yeah. So, hello. Good morning. Uh, at least in our in Israel, it's morning. Um, first of all, it's important to say again that the Western world has actually no experience in uh, treating children who were held as hostages, or so many women, or actually so many men. The men are not back yet. Yeah. So, what we have been doing here in Israel is actually reading every 
piece of article that has ever been published. Um, I think the medical examinations are probably a little bit easier to figure out. I mean, the, doc the physicians probably know what they need to check. They're, they're doing blood tests and all other kind of stuff, and they're trying to figure out what's the short-term effects of the captivity and what will be the long-term uh, effects we'll, we'll need to find out. The mental state is probably um, the more difficult issue because um, those people who were taken hostages um, have, have all witnessed the most horrific atrocities before they were taken kidnapped mm. um, or um, They were all seeing other people being murdered, um, very often their own parents or their own siblings. And then they were taken away um, to a place that we considered to be uh, one of the most dangerous places, at least for us. And they were held um, underground, overground, um, often without food, um, very, very often without yeah. at least one of the parents. Yeah. In the case oh. of many of the children, without either parents. And you know, while you were showing the segments and you were interviewing Edith, I couldn't see the picture, I was just hearing the voices and I could literally feel how my heart is, um, is broken again because... Um, I've spent a lot of hours with people who have survived the massacre and with um, families of um, of those who were kidnapped. And still, when I want to, when I when I want to really try and imagine what they're going through, I'm only I'm ju I just need to think about myself as a mother, and I can't. I, I oh, feel I'm that afraid. none of us can. Really, sorry. Yes. I know. I was I was going to say I I share that that level of empathy with you, and yet even neither of us can begin to imagine just the depths of what this must be like. And I'm so glad that you broke this down in terms of the trauma of what happened on October 7th, the trauma of what was endured since October 7th, and then the trauma yeah. of coming out of captivity after being in a news vacuum in darkness, figuratively and literally, and now you're talking about the different demographics involved because you know one of the freed hostages, a woman by the name of Elma Avraham, is on a ventilator, is in critical condition. She's in her 80s, by the way. And a friend says yeah. that her body temperature was admitted, when she's admitted, was around yeah. 83 degrees. So just talk yeah. to me about the yeah. age of, say, an 80-year-old enduring all of what we know so far. Well, it, I think it's almost impossible to imagine. On the one hand, these people are extremely strong, but they're extremely strong in terms of surviving um, uh, this trauma, uh, surviving the trauma and being able to live or to lead a life following such a trauma, a good life, are two completely different um, things. And I, and I also think that what we are seeing over the first few days is just um, the tip of the iceberg. I mean... Um, they're probably so happy to be reunited with the families or with the ones who have survived because almost all of them are coming back to a reality in which at least one of their family members of the dearest and nearest has been murdered. So, but the first few days are probably happy. Um, they feel safe at last. The trauma will, um, will surface in, 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 a, in days or months and will probably last for years because... It will be um, 
I expect, and I'm sad to say that, um, but I, I'm, I'm being realistic as a therapist, it will be extremely difficult for those people to ever feel safe again. If you can be snatched away from your bed as a baby, as an 84 years old woman, if you can be walked down to Gaza uh, barefoot, um, wounded after you've been shot, if you can be held uh, without food, scared to your life. You know, some of the people who came out said that they were actually, um, they, were sh they, they were thinking that they were being taken out to be executed, not to be Oh, freed. my goodness. So, oh, Freed, it's just, I when think, you think about the, the trauma, and, I, I'm, and just, I'm glad for your honesty, frankly, um, because this will be a process. And, of course, you and your expertise know that many of the, much of the trauma might even manifest years from now. And of course, yeah. as yeah. a human race, we are collectively grappling with the fact that this was even possible to happen. Ofrid Shapira Berman, thank you so much. You're very welcome, thank you. And as the toll of the Israel-Hamas war increases, we have news tonight about three Palestinian college students who were shot in Vermont. One of the students has now been released from the hospital, and we're learning more tonight about the suspect. That's next. We're learning new details tonight about the moments police arrested the suspect, who is now accused of shooting three Palestinian college students who were just visiting Vermont on their holiday break. Police charged Jason Eaton with three counts of attempted second-degree murder. Police say that when they approached Eaton's home, he said, quote, I've been waiting for you, unquote. The DOJ is now investigating whether this attack was a hate crime. And tonight, at least one positive development. A source telling CNN that one of the three injured students has been released from the hospital. Joining me now is Elizabeth Price, the mother of one of the young men, Hisham Oratani. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. I'm just so sorry to meet you under these circumstances. I mean, just Saturday mm -hmm. night, your son and two others are just walking before dinner. Um, mm -hmm. And now this has happened. I know you're, you're making your way to the States because your son, Hisham, mm -hmm. he was shot in the spine. I, I believe he is stable. Have you been able to speak with him? How is he doing? Yes, I have spoken with him. I've spoken with him several times. He's, um, his spirits are high. He's just a very resilient young man and he's been trying to uh, keep everyone's spirits up by joking and um, just trying to be as, as calm as possible. I think he's approaching, he's understanding now the very long road that he has in front of him. Um, he has another month in hospital um, and then uh, several months of physical therapy. Um, but currently the doctors say that he's lost uh, functional mobility in his legs. How is the prognosis? Um, the prognosis is bad. Uh, the prognosis is that he won't regain it. We are determined to work with him and support him and get the best possible care so that he can. I believe that Hisham has the determination and the courage and the resilience to regain his, uh, his legs uh, movement, but the doctors currently say that it is not possible. Elizabeth, I, I can't imagine you're on your way to the States, you're trying to get to your son, you're hearing this news, it's coming so quickly. How are you handling all of this tonight? 
Thank you. Well, um, it's early morning here. I woke up last night after being asleep for two hours, kind of on the dot of 20, 48 hours from when I got the telephone call around 2.30 in the morning. And, um, you know, I, I want to be there with him. I want to take care of him as a mother. I just want to be there to reassure him and and just give him the comfort he needs as he goes through this difficult transition in his life. Um, my mother and my brother are on the ground. Well, they both lived there. Uh, Hisham was visiting my mother and my mother lives next to my brother and they've been instrumental from the very beginning, caring for the boys um, 24 hours in, uh, um, at a time. And that's made a big difference. I know that when Hisham, after Hisham called the police, he texted my mother and my mother was there at the hospital immediately. And I think that's made a big difference. And so it's a lot easier for us knowing that we're going to complement and supplement the care that he's already getting and not to rescue him from um, amidst strangers. What did he tell you about what happened on Saturday evening? Well, they had just finished um, uh, attending my eight-year-old nephew, twin nephew's birthday party. And um, the three of them decided they'd go around the block. They like to walk around the neighborhood when they're there. They've each, uh, each of the other boys have been to my mother's house for Thanksgiving. Uh, twice, and Hisham has been visiting Burlington for about 10 years, and so he knows the community very, very well. And so he was hosting them on a walk, and they were walking down about two blocks from my mother's house, and a man came out of a building and approached them. They stepped to the side to allow him to have space on the sidewalk to pass them. He pulled out a gun and, without saying anything, shot them. Uh, Hisham fell to the ground. In fact, he said he he suddenly found himself on the ground. Uh, Tahseen, who suffered chest wound, was was you know in terrible pain and screaming with pain. And Kinan, who thought his uh, his friends had been killed, had escaped to try and get help. Um, Hisham uh, worried the, the the shooter stayed over them for a shorter period and then left. So Hisham thought that this, the man was going to um, continue to shoot them and kill them. And then Hisham called nine one one and the EMT came. Just your son was the one to even call and to have that, you know, wherewithal to be able to do that and just be so afraid as well. Do you do you do you believe you know why he did this? Does Hashim think so? He knows. Uh, I think Hashim and his friends have experienced a lot of um, harassment in, in recent months, um, both uh, and a lot of toxic um, narrative about who they are as Palestinians. My son is, and Kinan are both Palestinian citizens. My son is also an Irish citizen. Tassin is here as a Palestinian citizen. Um, and, you know, Hisham, as an Irish citizen in Ireland, would be would be recognized as, as a person and, and supported um, in his experience, his historical experience and his cultural experience. The Irish are incredibly supportive of the Palestinians. In America, the mainstream media and certain high-level government officials have uh, called for um, really brutal action against uh, the Palestinians, Palestinians in Gaza, and have stood by, or have the other ones have stood by as, as um, you know, one in 200 Palestinians have been killed. I mean, the equivalent of of, of the deaths in, Pal in Gaza in America is around 3 million people in proportion to the U.S. population. So I think, you know, Hisham and Kanan and Tahseen, I haven't asked them about this specifically, but in this context, which is very toxic towards uh, Palestinians and Muslims and Arabs, and in a current cultural state where people are othered very easily, uh, it is easy to make a link between the actions that dehumanize Palestinians in general and the actions of someone who used his gun to express his opinion. 
We are still waiting for the details of the investigation. I was really impressed with the Burlington police and the US government. They very quickly moved to resources uh, to allow for the investigation of this as a hate crime. Uh, the investigation is still ongoing and I trust that um, it will be, um, we will get information as it comes out. But um, this is a dangerous time in America if you are associated with a group um, that is involved in these conflicts. Um, there is too much hate speech in, against all, all sides. Um, and in that toxic uh, context, people take action on their own and with devastating consequences. Elizabeth Price, I am completely in awe of your clarity. And it's very clear to me that you are a mother who is determined to get to her child and sure this has not happened to anyone else's child as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, there've been a lot of polls raising alarm bells for Democrats. Is President Biden at risk of losing key groups who supported him back in 2020? Harry Anton is here to break it down next. Democrats are banking on the youth vote for President Biden to be reelected to the Oval Office. But a number of public polls show that young voters, well, they're turning on Biden. In fact, according to a CNN poll, the president trails Donald Trump by one percentage point. What's seemingly hurting him the most among young voters is the Israel-Hamas war. Let's break down the numbers with senior data reporter Harry Enten. Harry, so good to see you. I'm really interested in this because we see a lot of the polling to this effect. But young voters, as you well know, played a very critical role in helping elect President Biden back in 2020. But now he's seeing quite the dramatic drop in their support. So what exactly do the polls show? Yeah, Laura. I mean, take a look at the final 2020 polls. These are among 18 to 34-year-old voters. Joe Biden was leading Donald Trump amongst them by 29 points. Take a look. You know, you were mentioning those polls in 2023. I took an average of them among 18 to 34-year-olds. And now Biden still leads. But his lead here is just three percentage points. So a massive drop in the client. Why exactly it's happening, we're not sure. But it's clear across pretty much all of the polls that although Biden still has a very small advantage, it's way down from where it was just a cycle ago. And we're less than a year away, of course, from the election. I wonder, what did the polls show among black voters specifically? Yeah, so, you know, another pivotal part of the Democratic base, Biden versus Trump margin among black voters. Those final 2020 polls, Joe Biden was leading among black voters by 73 points. He still has a substantial lead amongst them. But look, again, the margin is way down. It's down to just 47 points. That would be the worst margin for a Democratic candidate among black voters since basically the 1960 election, of course, where JFK defeated Richard Nixon. Is that right? Well, look, there were a lot of reports as well of Trump doing better with Hispanic voters in 2020 than, of course, in 2016. What does that trend look like? Yeah, again, fitting the mold of what we've seen so far. The final 2020 polls, Joe Biden was leading among Hispanic voters by 26 points. He still leads, but that lead is down to just two percentage points. Again, this would be historic, Laura. You know, we mentioned African-American voters seeing a historic shift. You look among Hispanic voters, this would be the worst margin among Hispanic voters that, frankly, I've ever seen in a general election. We'll have to wait and see if this holds, but the fact is we're seeing historic declines for Biden among young voters, black voters, and Hispanic voters, and that's part of the reason why that Joe Biden is currently trailing Donald Trump in the polls. So 
Is it Joe Biden specifically or another Democrat? How would they do in terms of comparison to Trump and this margin? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, look, we've seen that Joe Biden's doing poorly amongst core Democratic groups. But I want you to take a look among all registered voters. Look at a recent Fox News poll. What you see is that Joe Biden trails Donald Trump by four percentage points. But do any of the other Democrats do really any better? No, not really. Trump by two, Trump by four, Trump by five. It doesn't seem to really matter who you face off against Donald Trump. Trump leads amongst against any of the Democrats. And by the way, only one is a running mate. The rest aren't even running for office right now to be the president of the United States. So this generic Democrat, so to speak, really fascinating. Harry Enten, thank you so much. Thank you. Let's get some more perspective tonight from Republican strategist Sir Michael Singleton and CNN political commentator and Democratic strategist Maria Cardona. Maria, let me begin with you here because the youth vote, as you know, mm -hmm. is so important yeah. to these candidates more broadly. How much do you think this has to do with the reaction to the Israel-Hamas war for Biden? I think that's part of it. But I think what we've seen is, we were talking about this in the green room, is that people are just in a general malaise, right? And, and young people specifically. I think they expected a lot from the president. They didn't get what they wanted. But Laura, it's a year out. And let's also acknowledge that all of the mobilization and all of the energy right now is happening on the Republican side. They're the ones who are having their crazy primary. They're the ones who are having the nutty race for speaker. All of the attention is on the Republican side. They are ready, they are mobilized, they are energized. We still have a lot of time to go. And what this campaign is doing, they are taking nothing for granted. They are taking these polls very seriously. I always say that even if you show me a poll where Joe Biden is 20 points ahead, they need to run like they're 20 points behind mm. because the, that's the only way they win. And he has a lot to run on. He can say to young people, look, I tried to cancel your student loans. Look who stood in my way. Republicans, Donald Trump. Give me another four years to finish the job. Give me a, 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 an expanded Democratic Senate. Give me a Democratic House, and I will deliver this to you. What will Donald Trump do? He wants to get elected to finish the job, too, to finish the job of destroying our democracy and taking away all of your rights. Speaking of the mobilization, though, and do you agree with what Maria is talking about? Because if Republicans have been dismobilized, they've yeah. got then the ground operations ahead, maybe, of what Democrats have had to do. Yeah, I mean, look, Joe Biden has had an opportunity for two years when he was first elected to accomplish some of these things, whether it's voting rights, whether it's attempting to forgive student debt. And to his credit, I want to give the president credit, he has forgiven billions of student yes, loans. Debt, he but, has. But not enough, uh, enough to impact certain groups, particularly black young Americans. I think for most millennials, some of the older Gen Zers, we've lived through financial hardship. Many of us are starting families later. Most cannot afford to buy a home. Many can't afford to barely pay back student loans. And those who do go to college don't usually finish because they can't afford it. So you look at all of those variables and younger voters are saying it's not enough to just say, give me four years, I'm going to address it. Tell me how you're going to address it, because we've heard this message before and you and they always fall on, on deaf ears, to be quite frank. Why is he losing the black vote, you think? I think and he's also, I mean, by the way, not for nothing, the Hispanic vote also, you saw those numbers yeah. from Harry Anton. I mean, look, I think he's losing the black vote because black people are, particularly some of the young ones, are sort of sick and tired of saying, look, we're going to give you 95% of our support and we're getting the bare minimum for it. There is not a single group in this country more loyal than black women and followed by black men. And while you see some movement here and there, it's not proportionate in terms of our overall support for the Democratic Party. Now, that's not to say that African-Americans are going to all of a sudden support Donald Trump. That's not what I'm saying at all, Laura. 
But what I am saying is that if the Democratic Party wants to continue to receive the support from black voters, particularly younger black voters, there have to be real deliverables, tangibles that people can feel and say, okay, this is what I'm getting in exchange for my vote. And they're not seeing that. And you know what the good news is, though, Laura? There have been tangible deliverables. And that's what this campaign is going to be doing in the coming months telling all of these voters exactly what this president and Kamala Harris has delivered. You look at focus groups, you look at all of these polls, when you're in a group of these voters and they have not heard of what this president has done, they hear what he has done, all of the programs that he has passed are incredibly popular, the numbers flip. So what this campaign is going to be doing, they've already started to, is invest record amounts of money in the messaging and the mobilizing and the ground game to make sure that all of this messaging works. I mean, this president has historically accomplishments on the economy. Not everybody is feeling him. He's going to continue to do it. On the Latino voters, they are going to make sure that they message this president the, the economic piece, which is critical, but also that if Donald Trump gets four more years in the White House, he's going to round up all of the undocumented immigrants, which every single Latino knows somebody who is or is part of their family. They're going to put them in mass detention camps. They're going to do mass deportations. They're going to be, he's going to be more draconian than he ever has been, and they're going Going to make sure that the message to the American people is this man is an existential threat. But, but, to our but quickly, Laura, when, when I go home into my hometown of New Orleans and I talk to people that I grew up with, just regular black folks, not the folks here in D.C. in the bubble in the circles. I'm, they, I'm a regular they, black they, person. They, thank you very they, much. I'm regular, but they, thank you very much. They don't Sir feel Michael. that their lives have improved. And when I talk to members of my family or, or distant uh, friends, they all ask, "What in the hell are you guys doing in Washington? We continue to support these guys. I am still struggling." to make the bare minimum. I'm still struggling to make sure that my kids have a better future than the current present that I have. And people don't see that. They don't realize it. And so my message to Democrats, Republicans aren't going to listen to me, Democrats, (laughs) it's guys, you better get your stuff in order or Joe Biden will not win in 2024. Well, there's so much more to talk about. And of course, we're less than a year away. uh, Maria Shermichael, thank you so much. I will point out, again, this regular black woman. (laughs) Thank you so much. Ahead, Natalie Portman's message to young people Be careful about being a child actor. She says she's lucky she wasn't harmed. And my next guest has their own story about working in Hollywood at a very young age. Allison Stoner joins me next. You know, sometimes Tinseltown is not the magical fairy tale it's portrayed to be. Oscar-winning actress Natalie Portman warning child actors about working in Hollywood. I would not encourage like <laughs> young people yeah. to go into this. Like I feel like it was sort of, an, I don't mean ever. I mean yeah. as children. Like I feel like it was almost an accident of luck that I was not harmed. And now I want to bring someone you've probably seen on the small and the big screen. Word of advice, you want to be friends with Tess? Don't be. What? Can I be photoshopped in? Wait, if Sarah's being photoshopped in, then I'm definitely going to Why don't we all be photoshopped in? <laughs> Allison Stoner joins me now. They are the host of the Dear Hollywood podcast. Allison, thank you so much for joining me tonight. You know, Natalie Portman is um, the latest actor to speak out about the experience of child actors in particular. And by her account, she was left unscathed. But that's that's not been your story. 
Yes, thank you for having me. And I appreciate Natalie raising awareness about this topic. So I started performing at three and Hollywood agents around the age of six insisted that I pursue it professionally. Now my family had no background in entertainment nor resources to understand the actual risks and difficult processes and long-term consequences of the decision. So after 200 films and shows behind the scenes, I developed severe health issues that led to hospitalization. I experienced financial exploitation that led to a bank account with zero dollars in it. And at six years old, I knew myself not as a human, but as a commercial product for consumption. So now on Dear Hollywood, Hollywood, we're uh, unpacking this toddler to train wreck pipeline we see with child stars. Since three years old, it's unbelievable to think about um, being in the business. But a lot of people will look at the so-called business and they'll think to themselves, oh, I can't feel sorry for this person. Look at the fame. Look at the money you're making. And they won't be sympathetic to you as a real human being. How do you make people understand that you're not just this commodity? Absolutely. And yes, why should we care, particularly amidst so many overlapping national and global crises that deserve our attention? You know, this is an era of deeply reckoning with our systems. And I want to share the rest of the untold story. So while child stars usually are highlighted in the media for uh, grandiose lifestyles and maybe reckless and entitled behavior, that's actually only about 3% of the reality. Behind the scenes, there's an entire industry ecosystem of child laborers that involves exploitation, abuse, tra traumatizing experiences that lead to mental illness, um, substance abuse, and in some cases, dying by suicide. So our focus here is on exposing the truth and building safer places for children and asking larger societal ethical questions around how we ought to approach children participating in media. So who does it come down to? Obviously, there's a lot of players involved in the overall machine. Some would look at this and say, a child actor, it's all on the parents. But really you're talking about a larger ecosystem. Who is a part of the protection universe? I'm so glad you asked, and I'm so glad you spoke to the holistic and integrative approach, right? It includes supporting at the personal and familial levels, but also reforming actual industry protocol and passing legislation to protect children. Fortunately, my team and some other organizations are designing these clear action plans. We have some toolkits that are designed with therapists that can equip people with tools to manage the industry pursuit. This can be given to agencies and acting schools and re recruitment programs. But on set, we also need mental health practitioners to support the cast and crew. And legislation, did you know 17 states still don't have child labor laws to protect entertainers? So in some cases, the child on set is actually the most vulnerable and least protected person. That's really shocking to think about those numbers. And I'm so glad that you've, you've raised awareness on this issue. And I keep going back to just the, how young you really were and how many others are out there right now who might not realize really the underbelly of what you're talking about and maybe how to course correct. Really nice talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so We'll much. be right back. Okay, and I don't get in front of it. He's got, he's got, he's lowering the hooks. Don't go in front of it. No, you're not, your eyes are not deceiving you. That's a police chase of a forklift in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's not even the half of it. The forklift was allegedly stolen by a 12-year-old. 
and the pursuit went on for more than an hour. Now, thankfully, no one was hurt. It ended when the boy eventually pulled over and was taken into custody. Investigators say the forklift was taken from a middle school where it was left unlocked with the keys hidden inside. Thanks for watching. Our live coverage continues in just a moment. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.